If you catch someone by surprise, you usually are doing something or saying something, getting involved in their life in a way that was, at the very least, unexpected. So if you're a new driver, I don't know if you've recently got your permit and you're logging your required hours behind the wheel as a 16 and a half to 17 year old and your dad or your mom or whoever the, the teacher is on the other side will say, look out for that car over there. And the new driver looks and says, I didn't even see it. Thank you. You were caught by surprise. Or if you're just learning, you're setting out on your own and you're opening a bank account for the first time and a parent or a teacher will be wise in cautioning you to beware of hidden fees. Don't be caught by surprise when you take money out of another bank's ATM. So we work hard at not being caught by surprise. There's a high cost when we're caught by surprise. Our human minds, even those of us who are spontaneous, we like to do things in a certain way. We like things to be fairly predictable, at least according to our own plans. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that often in the Bible, when God shows up, he, he tends to do so in a way that catches people by surprise. This tends to expose our great need for him, but more importantly, it showcases, like with a spotlight on a beautiful painting, his amazing grace for us, grace and blessing that we would have never, ever imagined that we needed, let alone wanted, and yet, in his amazing way, God reveals the very thing that we've desired all along. Last week, I gave you this definition of blessing by theologian Joyce Baldwin. It's a word that sums up God's great design in the world for the lost to be restored. Blessing is a word that summarizes God's plans to restore the world. But if it's his plan, you can be sure that a lot of us are going to be caught by surprise in the unfolding or the outworking of God's plan to iron out the wrinkles in our lives and in creation. The great mending of the world is not going to come the way that you and I expect it to. And that is certainly the case with the patriarch that we're looking at this morning. It's the third sermon in a series on the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. But this morning's patriarch is actually a matriarch. Her name is Sarah. The lessons we learn from Sarah's life are crucial for you to understand how God is at work in the world. And my title this morning is maybe a little unusual. It's Sarah's Laughter. That's because we see in the story of Genesis two or three occasions or instances of Sarah laughing at God's great design to restore the world. And so I'm going to do something a little unusual this morning. Instead of having one scripture passage, I'm going to actually read three passages of scripture. And I'm going to read them at the beginning of each one of my three points this morning because in each instance of laughter, in each passage of Sarah's life, there's an important lesson for you and for me as we try to understand how God is restoring the world. So let's begin then with prayer 
and we're going to ask God to illuminate or to shed light on not only the reading of Scripture, but also on its proclamation. God has a word for you this morning, and we need to ask him to help us to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your holy presence once again in prayer, this time dedicating ourselves to to listening to what you have for us. For whatever has brought us here this morning, whether it's accident or circumstance or a deep desire to be close to you or anything in between, Lord, we want to know what the Spirit has to say to the church. And so help us to set our intentions, to clear our minds from lesser things. And may the thoughts and desires of our heart and the words of the preacher's mouth, may they be acceptable in your sight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah's laughter, the first point, is that the source of Sarah's laughter is unbelief. The source of Sarah's laughter is her unbelief. And we see that in our first reading, which is Genesis chapter 18. So let's turn there in our Bibles. I have to resist the temptation of reading the entire chapter. There's so much interesting detail here, and you know I love the Bible, and I love the story of the Bible and all of its nuances, but we're just going to read a short portion, verses 9 through 15, for this first point. They said to him, that is, these three visitors that have paid a visit to Abraham, they said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he, Abraham, said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, And my Lord, that is Abraham, is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He, Jehovah, said, no, but you did laugh. At this point in the story, Sarah is 90 years old. So when she says worn out, she sort of gets a pass in my mind. It's true. And the three men that visited Abraham were weary travelers seeking rest and food, but in fact, our Almighty God appearing in this unusual form. Theologians call this sort of an appearance of God in the Bible a theophany, a manifestation of the divine presence, in this case in the form of three men. But apparently this visit from Jehovah 
is not for Abraham this time. Because after they finished eating and finding a little rest, God asks, is Sarah here? You see, God has appeared to Abraham once, twice, three times already. But apparently Sarah has had trouble or hasn't yet come to the place where she believes the promise. Is Sarah here? He asks. Sarah, Abraham confirms, is not only in the tent, but she's behind the men, listening at the door. This means that she thinks she's essentially observing unnoticed. And when she hears the promise of Yahweh God, the text tells us that she laughs to herself. Her reflection on this promise in the words of the scripture reveal the intentions of her heart and the meaning of the laughter, the source of the laughter, is that God's promise is basically ridiculous. Now, God hears all things, but she was right behind the door in the tent. So whether she chuckled softly or whether he read her mind, the text doesn't tell us. But in the form of a question, God asks, did Sarah laugh? And after asking this question, God rebukes Sarah in his own way by saying one of the most famous phrases in the Bible, it's worth underlining, it's repeated in the New Testament, is anything too hard for the Lord? What a question. It's a rhetorical question. The answer, at least when I was in middle school, would be, duh. Of course nothing's too hard for the Lord. And the, the question, the rhetorical question, proves my first point. The source of Sarah's laughter is her unbelief. It's the laughter of someone who thinks that most things are possible for God, but not everything. You know, the Bible says that out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you can learn a lot about a person's heart just by what a person says about himself or herself, about God, about the family, about work. And Sarah's reaction in the following verse reveals her unbelief again. She denies that she laughed, which is a lie. I didn't laugh. It, it almost sounds like a four or five-year-old, doesn't it? I do it too, and I'm not four or five anymore. And it tells us that Sarah is afraid. She denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid, verse 15. She's afraid because, like you would be afraid, when you're exposed. It's an uncomfortable feeling to have a, a halogen light shine in your face to go to the doctor and have images being taken of the inside of your body, what's in there, to be exposed. No one likes the feeling, and even more so when the exposure comes from the penetrating gaze and the omniscient grasping of the very thoughts of our heart by a holy God. She realizes that she's not in the presence of an ordinary man. These aren't just three regular visitors. 
She's afraid because all humans are afraid when they're standing in the presence of the Lord. Now, what do we learn from this first instance of Sarah's laughter? I said we've got three instances and there's three lessons. The first lesson is this. Faith pleases God. That's the first lesson. The source of Sarah's laughter is her unbelief, so I'm turning that on its head and looking at it on the positive side of the coin. Faith pleases God. I get this phrase, pleases God, because it's part of the classic definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. I actually want us to turn there, so if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 11:6, we're going to spend just a minute and look at this definition of faith. This is a beautiful chapter about faith. It's sometimes known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. In fact, I'd encourage you, Sunday afternoon, this afternoon as a family, or if you spend some time outside on this beautiful day in the park, open up to Hebrews 11 and spend some time reflecting on all the instances and examples of godly faith that we see in this passage. And I'll tell you, Sarah shows up in this list as well. I'll get to that point in just a few minutes. But right now we're looking at verse 6. Definition of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. This tells us that faith pleases God. And then the definition goes on to say, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's some other important elements here in faith. Faith pleases God. Faith is drawing near to God. Faith is believing in the existence of God. So atheism excludes faith. Agnosticism, I'm not sure. It can lean atheistically, I suppose. Some agnostics, though, and if this is you, it may be that you're open to it. You're not excluding the existence of God, and that's a good thing. You're closer to the faith that is being described here. So you have to believe in the existence of God, and then it says you have to believe that God rewards those who seek him. Two things here. Faith seeks God. Faith requires some movement, some effort. God welcome seekers. He rewards you when you seek him, when you ask questions, when you come to church and you don't think you're going to get anything out of it, when you make a phone call to a Christian friend or open your Bible or even utter a prayer of desperation. That's seeking God. But then the reward is important as well. Faith believes that God rewards those who seek him. That there's, there, it isn't just sort of punishment, you know? It's not just hard. It's hard now, but there's a reward at the end. Faith banks on that. It, it, it depends. It hangs for dear life on the knowledge, the belief that though I can't see God now, I will be rewarded with sight. Though my life is hard now, I will be rewarded with blessing. Though I feel excluded and alienated right now from society at large or from my friend group or from my peers at work or even my spouse, 
God is sufficient. God will reward me. That's what faith is. In Sarah's case, she asks at one point in her passage, and we'll go back now to our text in Genesis 18. She said, can someone my age have pleasure? This refers to sexual pleasure, first of all, but also the pleasure of a woman bearing a child. And she answers the question, no. And so her laughter, in her laughter, we see in an unguarded moment, in an imperfect moment, Sarah is the opposite of faith. She's not seeking God. She's looking at her body and her story. She's not pleasing God. She's not asking what pleases God. She is just wanting to please herself. She's not looking to the reward. And in a way, and I don't want to be too hard on Sarah, but in a way, she doesn't believe that God exists. In a way. How about you? Are you open to learning the lesson this morning? Faith pleases God. Or have you all but given up? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So that's my first point. The source of Sarah's laughter is unbelief. Second, the second instance of laughter, we actually need to rewind the clock a little bit. We're going to go back 10 years. And that's going to take us back to Genesis 17. And in this instance of laughter, we discover, I think, a surprising truth, which is Sarah wasn't the first one to laugh at God. Her husband Abraham was. So as you read this passage, we need to ask the question, is Abraham's laughter the same doubting laughter as Sarah's, or is it different? Let's take a look. 17, Genesis 17. I'm going to read 1 through 3, and then we're going to look at 15 to 19. Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and skipping down now to verse 15. As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. In this passage, God, in his grace, appears to Abraham, and he's reiterating the promise that a son will come from his wife's barren womb. And the text tells us, both in verse 3 and also again 
in verse 17 that Abraham's first response is to fall on his face. Now, when someone falls on his face in the Bible, it's typically a posture of worship. When God appears to Abraham and reiterates the promise, Abraham's response is to worship. We can see a a reason why Abraham falls in his face in verse 3 because God reveals a very special name to Abraham. There's a lot going on in, in our story, by the way, related to names. Abraham's, Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, Isaac. But there's a name of God here that's quite precious. Verse 1 says, God, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, appears to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. And my Bible has a footnote. If you, if you put on your reading glasses, if you're my age or older, you can read it. It says, God Almighty is the Hebrew word El Shaddai. El Shaddai. One Hebrew scholar explains that El Shaddai belongs to the sphere of salvation and describes God as one who has power to keep his promises even when the order of nature is opposed to it and the power of nature cannot bring it about. God Almighty, which is how our ESV translators are rendering this word, God Almighty means God is Almighty. And so Abraham, when he hears the name of God, falls on his face in worship. See, Abraham's response to the the arrival of God is to believe that God is who he says he is. He is El Shaddai. He is the one who is able to bring about these promises. And he falls on his face a second time in verse 17. Then Abram fell on his face, but this time we have his laughter as well. He falls on his face and he laughs to himself. So my conclusion here is that Abraham's laughter cannot mean the same thing as Sarah's. Sarah didn't fall on her face. She questions God. And then she hides when God asks if she questioned him. And the text explicitly tells us that she is afraid. Abraham doesn't lie. He does question, though. He says, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's interesting, this, almost, almost the same phrases come out of Abraham's mouth and Sarah's, and yet the intention of the heart is clear based on their reactions. In the one case, Abraham is worshiping El Shaddai, and in the other, Sarah is questioning the power of God. And so God has to say, is anything too hard for El Shaddai? Calvin on this text concludes that Abraham, with his question, is neither ridiculing the promise of God nor treating it as a fable or rejecting it altogether. Rather, as often happens when things occur that are least expected, caught by surprise, Abraham is partly lifted up with joy and partly carried out of himself with wonder. And so he bursts into laughter. Abraham's laughter 
is, are you kidding me? Can that really be? We see a similar dynamic actually in Zechariah's response to Baron Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 and Mary's response to the angel in Luke chapter 2. Zechariah's response, how can this be, leads to him being silenced for six months because of his unbelief. Mary's response, how can this be, leads to a righteous explanation and the affirmation of the Blessed Virgin. What can you learn from this instance of laughter? Lesson number two, God's plan is better than your idea. God's plan is better than your idea. I've emphasized this in the name El Shaddai. Your idea probably doesn't factor in the El Shaddai component if I can put it that way. The almighty power of God. You've probably looked at it and figured it out and, and made your plans according to what you know is possible. But El Shaddai may have another thing altogether. You see, the almighty God is one who works wonders, as Paul says in Ephesians, far beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Now, I need to make a caveat here. Almighty God is perfectly able and often does utilize ordinary means to manifest his extraordinary plan. So when you pray for a miracle and the cancer is removed, that's El Shaddai. And the doctors are just scratching their head. They're like, I don't know what happened. But if you pray for a miracle and they find a new chemotherapy drug invented in a lab by some smart men and women, that's El Shaddai. That's Almighty God. See, we need to avoid creating a false dichotomy or erecting a barrier or a wall between ordinary means and extraordinary means because God's providence is over them all. And I don't want to diminish a miracle, but it's no less a miracle that the cells in your lungs, as we sit here together, are exchanging oxygen across that barrier through known means of biochemistry than it is that God spoke existent, out of nothing, creation into existence. The supernatural providence of God. God's plan, you see, is better than your ideas. So your first, your first response, your calling, is to imitate Abraham here, not Sarah. It's to fall on your face before El Shaddai. And then to hear his summons, which is equally important. Walk before me and be blameless. In light of the remarkable power of God, your response needs to be to dedicate your life to him. And to be content to be confined within the narrow, what seems at times to be the narrow bounds of his plan for your life. God's plan being better than your idea reminds me of another couple earlier in the Genesis story. In that marriage, the husband failed to carry out the plan of Almighty God. He was either asleep, busy, or 
derelict. Instead, he listened to his wife, who herself had believed the lie of one of God's enemies, the enemy. As a result, she was deceived, and her husband, whose name is Adam, permitted himself to be led astray by his wife's disobedience and unbelief. And so, through that sequence, the enemy, the wife, the man, we see human ideas being thrust into the place that belongs to God's El Shaddai plan. I think this means in particular that God's plan for the family is better than your idea. And this is one of the priorities of us as a church. We want to prioritize the Christian family. And as unpopular as it may be, because everybody has an idea about the family these days, it seems everybody but the Lord, we need to emphasize it, and that will be emphasized from this pulpit, the importance of the Christian family. So this means something for men. Men, you have a special and an important role to play in your families. It's something like the role that Abraham plays in this story where God, clearly he speaks to both men and women, but there's a, there's a kind of priority, a kind of prophetic priority in the voice of God to the head of the home. And we see that in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17. But along with that priority, men, comes a, a kind of greater responsibility for you men to model falling on your face before Almighty God and laughing in the hilarity of His amazing grace and not getting angry and not being lazy, but listening to the word of the Lord and leading your family in that way. And I think you see this also in the church. And to some extent, though it's a little blurrier in my mind, in society at large, In a day and in an age where men are wondering what their job is, here it is. God is speaking to you, brothers. He wants you to hear the voice of God, to fall on your face, worship him. And in hilarity, in a contagious hilarity, believe the promises of God such that your wife and your children and your church and your colleagues at work even your industry is transformed by your faith. If you wonder, brothers, what your job is, that's what it is. I also think we get with Sarah a reminder about the blessing of motherhood. Now, I know she's barren at this point in the story, and so there's, there's, there's comfort, I think, in recognizing that God loves Sarah even before she has children. But in particular, since she does ultimately become a mother, girls, you should not believe the lie of the world that your best, greatest, and most fulfilled life will be found independent of a man. That's the Christian family. 
for somewhere between 97 and 99% of the population, marriage is God's plan. And the fact that we live in an age where marriage is denigrated and ignored is an indication, not of our progressive thinking, but of the breakdown of God's plan for creation. God's plan for the world to bless the world is for daughters of Sarah to be inspired by the faith of sons of Abraham, who in a partnership, a covenant marriage, as husband and wife, believe the promises of God and trust him, even though it may mean that you are barren and in exile for many years. God's plan is better than yours. Third and final story or example of Sarah's laughter. The source of Sarah's laughter is unbelief. The example of Sarah's laughter is her husband, Abraham. She should have listened to him rather than her own anxious thoughts and cares. My third point is that the transformation of Sarah's laughter is supernatural. Let's look at our final text in Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verse 1, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. What an intro. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. What a marvelous passage. Every detail, Moses who wrote Genesis is clear, every detail of the promise comes to pass as he had said, as he had promised, when he had said, when he had promised. These are comforting words, aren't they? What had seemed like forever, and for most of us, 25 years would be like, nope, this thing is, this, we are so done here, I am not going back there anymore. It finally turns to reality, and wouldn't you know it, faith becomes sight. And in case we would be tempted to forget, the lesson of the supernatural transformation of Sarah's heart and her laughter, this is new laughter now, she's now laughing with Abraham's joy, it's embedded in her son's knee. Isaac, he laughs. Every time she would call her son, it would be a reminder of the hilarious, overwhelming, amazing grace of God shown to a poor, doubting sinner, a hesitating believer like Sarah and Abraham. What's the third lesson here? Transformation is possible. 
You may be the most skeptical, cynical, doubting person on the planet. God can turn that thing around. There's no one who is too far gone. You haven't sinned too many times. You haven't read too many books. You haven't got too many degrees. You haven't traveled to too many cultures, seen too many religions, learned too much philosophy. God, in a moment, can wipe all of your doubt away and make it absolutely clear to him that he is El Shaddai. And he's done it. He's done it in many of your cases. And if you're not yet a Christian, he may yet still do it. How can you explain why you're hearing this sermon this morning? You know, our doubts don't have to define us. And some of us might have been tempted to write Sarah off in Genesis 18 when she laughed and was afraid and was hesitating. I mean, surely Abraham told her and explained to her the promise before. It wasn't like this was the first, oh, I'm having a child. No, this has been 25 years of, Sarah, can we please talk about this again? No, I'm not interested in talking about this. Sarah and you were made for more than mockery and cynicism and sarcasm. You and Sarah were made for more than looking tough and having a penetrating intellect, being the man or the woman with the plan, the person in charge. Now, God welcomes questions, and we've seen the tenderness of God in Genesis 15 where God says, can't, can't, can't you do something about this, God? And God says, Abe, come on, let's go outside. You and me, we're going to have a walk. Look up at the stars. Remember that from last Sunday? You see all those stars? It's a visual lesson. God's patient and gracious with our questions. And even in Sarah's case, he doesn't smack her around. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't call her out in the worst possible way. He, he calls her out of her sin. Yes. He doesn't leave her there. You know, you're better than this. You're not the kind of person who needs to go down in history as a skeptic. You can go down in history as Sarah does, as a believer. And when you reread Hebrews 11 this afternoon, you'll, you'll read just exactly how Sarah is remembered. As a woman who believed that God could raise the dead, which is what it would take for a child to come from her womb. And ladies, you can go down in history not as someone who's constantly resisting your husband's biblical guidance, emphasis on biblical guidance, but you could go down in history as Sarah does, though she had at one point. Peter remembers her for perpetuity as a woman who was submissive and who listened to the biblical guidance of her husband, Abraham. God's not done with you yet. Transformation is possible. Baldwin notes that nothing can give such deep, lasting satisfaction as the faithfulness of God demonstrated in his promises. And that faithfulness, in your case, I'm not sure what it looks like, but I, 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 I will hazard a guess that today, tomorrow, some new development is going to present itself to you and you will see the faithfulness of God. Well, we started out this morning by noticing that 
If blessing is God's plan for the lost to be restored, it will probably catch you by surprise. That's just the way we are. We're small people. We're narrow-minded by nature. We just, we, we can't encompass enough variables. And it's a complicated world, a big, complicated world. And we're just smart enough to convince ourselves that we can, but we can't. Too often, faith gets stuck in a rut, and you wind up going through the motions, but in reality, your religion is a limit to God. El Shaddai does not operate necessarily in these four walls, in the Presbyterian church, or even in the Bible, although he does all those things. He'll come at you in the least likely place at the least likely time. And it's a a God thing. It's an El Shaddai thing. This name of God reveals that when God appears to Abraham in the beginning, reiterating his plan to save, he is going to do it. And he fell on his face in worship. I want to close. I referenced this already, but there's another impossible birth that you may have heard of. Happened many centuries later. This was a pregnancy that was not only against the order of nature, but impossible for nature to fulfill. And by the way, as somebody who studied these things, I've spent a lot of time on the virgin birth, you would not believe the extent that smart, credentialed theologians go to explain away the virgin birth in thick commentaries. You see, Mary and Joseph have a very similar case as Abraham and Sarah. Except in their case, this woman, Mary, who's descended from Sarah, did not respond with Sarah's first reaction, but with Abraham's more mature response. See, Mary, when she was told that as a virgin, which is to say outside of normal procreational activities, she would conceive a son. The Holy Spirit would overshadow her, The child to be born of her would be the promised Messiah. When she was told this, she said, Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me. Nothing is impossible with God. See, Mary had learned from Sarah. She knew that God could do all things. I love how this the uh, nativity is expressed in the old Christian praise song by Amy Grant, El Shaddai. Through the years you made it clear that the time of Christ was near, though the people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. Through your wor- though your word contained the plan, they just could not understand your most awesome work was done through the frailty of your son, El Shaddai. The people couldn't see what Messiah ought to be. They, they had the plan of salvation. They had it down. They were writing books about it and conferences and the whole nine yards. And Jesus showed up as if from nowhere, out of left field, from Galilee. They couldn't understand that God's most awesome work was done through the frailty of his son. When you are weak, then you are strong. Because my grace is made magnificent. It's hilarious. It's amazing in human weakness. 
That's what El Shaddai means. Do you think anything is too hard for the Lord? God can see what kind of laughter is bubbling up in your heart. Let's ask him to turn our cynicism into joy. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Sarah's laughter and giving us a glimpse, a transparent glimpse into the struggles of a sincere but hesitant woman of faith. And we thank you that Sarah doesn't remain there, but her laughter is of unbelief is turned to joy. People will laugh over me. They will join me in my celebration of the almighty power of God. So I pray, Lord, especially this morning for someone who's teetering on the brink of unbelief. Help that person see your power, Lord. And for a frustrated saint who is tempted to accuse you, Lord, rather than submit to you. I pray you would bring refreshment and renewal. And may we as a church be characterized by laughter, the laughter of the promise of Jesus, who makes much out of our little and whose strength is in our weakness. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.